It is so good to be with you. And Rick, thank you for uh, such thoughtful worship uh, as we come and asking about our direction today and putting together uh, ways in which we come into the presence of God. We bring our need. You know, the world can see what we do here. Maybe even the rest of the campus is a waste of time. I know there's papers to be written, right? Tests to study for. Uh, and yet we've gathered for this uh, moment, not a royal waste of time, but important moments as uh, we have been already brought into the presence of God. I I thank Hewlett for his invitation to be here, and my past now has found me out, Hewlett. So uh, of our seminary days, I've always admired him so much, and especially his ability as a proclaimer and, and preacher. And uh, many friends that we have uh, here at Baylor. Also, Jennifer, we're... Okay, there's Jennifer Nath. Jennifer, I dedicated Jennifer in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Held her in my arms, you know. Her parents were members of our church. In fact, she is here by bequest of her father. He called her early this morning. And so thank you for being here today. Let's pray together. Oh God, we have come into your presence. Holy moments. So today, whatever it is, a word that you have for us, whatever it is you're saying to us today, oh God, help us to hear it, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I thank God for his mercy and grace that I'm a pastor. Now, I have to be honest, I can't say that every Monday morning, but I do today, and I do share the feelings expressed in Beekner's words on our order of service. And this Sunday, this past Sunday, I celebrated 16 years as pastor of First Baptist Church Abilene. I, the, the, the children that I dedicated, I've baptized. Children I've baptized, I've seen graduate. I, I've, I've performed their weddings. As a pastor... It is just remarkable the ways we share in the journey of a congregation, how our lives come together. And as a pastor, too, I have been invited into the sacred and holy moments of people's lives. Sorrows from tragic losses that happen in trauma centers to the God-forsaken questions that come from people in my office or in their home when cancer has not been healed. And when I walk with people as a pastor through those kinds of moments, I, I want to take off my shoes because I'm on holy ground. Because they've asked me or you to walk with them in some of those private places of life. Where it is, as we go with them, it, it's our greatest ministry is not so much with our words or our answers. It is with our presence. For I've learned what, what it means just to be called their pastor. As pastors, we are there in those hard moments, and especially when people in our congregation walk through the dark night of the soul called depression that some think that faithful followers, pastors, 
What about seminarians that we're immune or inoculated from the disease of depression? I, I'm in a Thursday morning men's group at people from our church, and I'm, I'm not the leader. It's just a group of us. We study books, and it's nice not to be the leader. And in the book we're studying right now, the author, who is a pastor, he has this brief section in the book directed toward ministers and our work which has been interesting for these other guys to hear about our work and to hear their opinions about it. And the author, he, he writes, God loves a cheerful minister. I thought, well, that's so nice, you know. I wanted to say that what makes the minister cheerful is that passage that God loves a cheerful giver, you know. The author goes on to say, that we are to do our work not out of drudgery or duty, but delight. Now, I, I agree with that. But, you know, I don't go to the hospital every Wednesday humming or skipping to how great is our God, you know. I don't sign my emails with a smiley face. I, I do hope. I hope my congregation sees me as a cheerful pastor. I hope they also see me as as a human pastor because there are times that ministers are not cheerful. Even ministers get depressed. Think, too, for a moment, what if we were all cheerful all the time? You know, Mary, I don't think could stand it from me. What if we, um, if if we're to know the deep sorrow of our congregation and the hurts that people bring to worship and need to hear the kind of music we sang today about a God who does not grow weary. You, You see that we like our Lord. We must be persons of sorrow acquainted with grief. God can use Our depression, just as he used the struggle of Jeremiah. And sometimes, I tell you, after 35 years, some of the best sermons come from the bottom of the well when you're dry and empty. Depression is dangerous, though. Let me tell you a story. And perhaps some of you know this story about a pastor friend of mine who walked through the dark night of the soul. His name is John Petty, pastor of the Trinity Baptist Church in Kerrville. John, he seemed to have everything. He was a skilled Bible scholar, majored in Greek, minored in psychology, graduate from Baylor. He had a doctorate of ministry degree here from Truett. He he was the youngest chair of the executive committee of the Baptist General Convention of Texas. He was a beloved pastor as he had pastored that congregation in Kerrville for nine years. He was married to Kelly Hamill. I had seen Kelly grow up. I knew her parents. I'd seen her grow up and he was, John was the father. They were the father of two children. And then on Wednesday, February 9th, at the age of 42, John drove out to a remote part of a ranch where he had hunted, and he took his life. I said that John took his life. 
It was the high noon demon of depression that took his life. We ask why. How how could that happen? Somebody with so much and who had accomplished so much. Perhaps just one thing. We need to be reminded that health and wholeness are not the result of what you accomplish. Don't place all of that in your ministry of what you accomplish, what you accomplish, or about your performance on Sunday morning. Phil Leinberger said at John's service, the one thing we know was that John suffered from a disease of depression. What we cannot understand is that depression speaks a language of its own known only to the depressed. As much as John knew Greek, he knew the language of depression. He could understand that when perhaps we can't. Dr. Leinberger described the vocabulary of depression that speaks to us. In our minds, it is a language of persistent sadness, anxiety and emptiness, feelings of hopelessness and pessimism, feelings of shame and guilt, worthlessness and helplessness. And it's going to be throughout your congregation. Mental health professionals cite depression as the number one emotional illness in the country today. It is no respecter of one's status, position, or profession. When I preached on this topic after John's death in Abilene, I was overwhelmed by the response of people who felt free to come out of the closet, so to speak. From one who is one of the most successful petroleum engineers and geologists in our community to faculty members at Hardin-Simmons. A New York Times article in August 2010 entitled Congregations Gone Wild. I don't know if he was picking up on that spring break kind of film, Girls Gone Wild, but Congregations Gone Wild. and examines the pressures of pastors today to soothe, entertain their congregations. The article cites... When those ministers fade under the pressure of churchgoers who do not want to be challenged, pastors become candidates for depression, and many suffer in silence and isolation. One of the most outstanding Methodist ministers of the last century was William Edmund Sangster. His ministry was filled with flourishing congregations as he preached to full sanctuaries on Sunday. And upon his death, though, his son found an old journal that recorded, though, his silent suffering of this successful minister. And on September 18, 1930, 30 years before Dr. Sangster's death, he wrote, I am a minister of God, and yet my private life is a failure in these ways. I've lost peace. I've lost joy. I've lost my taste for work. I feel a failure. The one who brought peace and joy to so many others walked through the valley of depression. Now, Just one paragraph here. 
There are physiological issues of clinical depression where the darkness is forced upon the mind like with John Petty because of that deficiency of serotonin in the neurotransmitters, that chemical imbalance. But it's beyond this message, okay? It's beyond this pastor as well. It's just trying to say that to be a cheerful minister sometimes is not enough. That you can't walk this road on, on your human strength or willpower alone. So we look at though more those circumstantial issues, the inevitable pressures of life, the disappointments of ministry can precipitate that pessimism and discouragement of depression. Allow me to, to add one other source about depression, and really which I guess is a sermon in itself, that depression comes from those deadly self-imposed expectations that we just talked about really in Dr. Creech's class. More than what any congregation can place upon you is what we will place upon ourselves of thinking that we should be able to leap those tall buildings or that congregation in a single bound. I've never seen an S on a liturgical robe, okay? In the text from Jeremiah, we hear, yes, there's anger, but listen also, for the despair of depression, his words there are as mournful as the sound of barbers Adagio for spring strings. Listen to his lament. Oh Lord, you deceived me. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Cursed be the day that I was born. Why did I ever come out of my mother's womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? His ministry had not worked out as he had planned or expected. Jeremiah was not called just to be this local hillbilly prophet, but a prophet to the nations. He, he was to have this international ministry, CNN's man of the year, God's man. Yet his own people would not listen to him. He spent significant time in jail, was accused of being a traitor, treason. He was like a and I don't know, maybe this dates me. He was like the Rodney Dangerfield of prophets. He got no respect. For two decades, he had preached and nothing, nothing. You know, I have this cartoon, and it shows this preacher leaning over the pulpit with this depressed look. I mean, just you can see he's looking over the congregation, and the caption above, he, he looks and he says, this is my fourth sermon on transformation. How come you all look the same? 
You know, nothing happened. Nothing happening in your churches or like the church down the street where God's blessing and you're surviving. And Dr. Joel Gregory's sermon, When God's Servant is Depressed, he attributes the source of Jeremiah's depression to a deep sense of disappointment in being deceived, seduced by God. Jeremiah is disappointed. God has been big on promises, but seeming short on delivering. And behind his anger, as always, is this deep sense of loss and and grief. And, And a minister needs to attend to your losses as much as we attend to the losses of others. But about your old grief that needs to be attended to and resolved. Disappointment is devastating, especially when we have such high expectations. I have not told this story often, and I really wasn't sure whether to do that this morning, but I, I, I tell it. In 1987, I was called to be pastor of Highland Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, It was more than I could imagine. There were Hewlett and I had had Coke can fights. Now I was being called back to be pastor in that city about a mile away from Southern Seminary. I finally had arrived. The search committee painted such a a picture of possibility of that congregation. I went with such grand expectations. And yet little did I know or realize I was following one of the most gifted preachers in Baptist life, Dr. Paul Duke. Now that name might not mean anything to some of you. I know to some of you it does. But whether or not, trust me, that guy can preach, okay? Paul Duke can read the box of Nestle Quick, calcium. He can, get, he can read that and people are giving their lives to foreign missions, you know? I mean, gosh. He, he's, he's an artist with words combining insight with this sense of, of humor. Plus, Paul has that, that pastoral voice, a, a word from heaven. And when Paul left Highland as pastor to go to Missouri, a significant number of of people and students left the church because he was no longer preaching. And then I showed up from Oklahoma, grapes of wrath, (laughs) station wagon, you know. I brought my gifts that the church really needed in finding a mission and identity. Yet the place where I was judged was in the pulpit. And there were those that were disappointed with what they heard in the pulpit. Some said they didn't like my voice. Now I can change some things about me. That one I can't, you know. Well, I did for a while try to talk deeper. That was a joke. One Ph.D. Seminary congregations can be tough. Um, I, I sat where you sat, you know, at one time, and I had my response to 
preachers in chapel, and then God, in his sense of humor, sent me to a seminary church, I might say. But I had one Ph.D. student at Southern who came up and said, I've heard worse preachers. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> who, who are they, you know? <laughs> and out of my disappointment, I wondered, God, why have you led me here? Why have you called me? I found myself in the, in the valley of depression and how it really expressed itself petrified to preach. What you loved, what, what, but, but scared to death. I found myself preparing all week but unable to write because it had to be perfect. You know that at times of, of when you finally have to commit something to paper. And so I, it was blocking me, and I developed this, this pattern of waiting till 12 midnight on Saturday night to finally commit words to paper. I know it sounds crazy, but you see, depression speaks its own language. I, I mean, finally, I knew Sunday was coming. <laughs> I, I, I had to have something, so finally I would have to write. And then at 5 a.m., Usually I would finish, get a few hours sleep on the couch, and then would arrive at the church for the 8.30 service. This pattern continued for months. How? Well, I know how I survived, but at times I still wonder. It, it was when I asked for help through the encouragement of my spouse, Mary, and asking for help, it included a counselor friend, and going even to the deacons to talk about the issues in the church that were not just about my preaching. I finally told my story. I could no longer be a silent sufferer. And yet the healing started. I stayed at Highland, though, for seven years, which became good years, but still remembering that first year that I survived. I am a different pastor today because of that sojourn through the wilderness and that depression and disappointment. It, it was, you know, Mary and I have talked about this. It was great for our family. and In a lot of ways, it turned out that way. But I still wonder if that was my Babylonian captivity. Well, was that my sojourn through the wilderness of where you have no choice but to trust God? Was it where I finally had to be shaped in ways I never would have been shaped otherwise. So it is only later, I can say, as I look back on that time and say in the words of the Apostle Paul, we were under such pressure, that word pressure literally meaning burdened excessively like a, a donkey that cannot bear beneath the load, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life. But this happened. Why did this happen? It happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but the God who raises the dead. And he raised me from the dead. And I'm still learning that lesson. And as the Apostle Paul faced this hardship, whatever it was, 39 lashes, violent riot in Ephesus, 
He provides a walk through the valley of depression, not a formula, but an understanding of faith journey. I, I close with this quickly. Chuck Poole in his book, Don't Cry Through Thursday, tells us that in this confession that we have of Paul in, in Corinthians, Paul first tells his story. He doesn't try to hide his depression or be a spiritual superstar like the super apostles in Corinth to which he was always compared to. People had accused Paul of being weak with his words or, or his eloquence, yet he boasts in his weakness. Now I know it, it, it's, it's risky to be vulnerable, especially for a pastor, but it also has its rewards of genuine community. And so as we tell our stories, may our churches be safe places where we can be human and acknowledge our, our struggles and to tell our, our stories and watch what God does out of that incarnational understanding. Secondly, Paul finds hope in the past and uses the gift of memory as a reminder of God's guiding providence. Oh, my friends, to come on this campus... I've, I've, took a, I've taken a walk down memory lane and there are some accusing voices in the past. I, I could think of the voices that could fill this campus with regret. Regrets of my youth. When you look to the past, even at your young age, be careful. Do not listen to the voices of regret of what could have been or should have been. But as Paul does, look to the past and remember the ways in which God has provided a way through. The old apostle says, God has delivered us from deadly peril. We're here today in chapel. Never take that for granted. Perhaps you're wrestling with old disappointments or walking through hardships beyond your ability to endure. But God has brought you to this very moment by His grace. Oh, I want to quote with Gaines Dobbins as I think of standing here today. For me, oh, I know it's a, just a chapel service on Tuesday for you. But I want to declare with Gaines Dobbins, the father of Christian education, on his 75th birthday, he said, as I look on the past events of my life, I have this sense of awe and wonder that God kept his angels up late at night, charting a destiny for me and redeeming my life for destruction. There's power in the past. Remember the warm days, too, in your calling, the warm days of spring. When God called you, keep those close and remind, be reminded in the words of Beekner, you were not poorly advised, but called. And third, thirdly, the ways that God has delivered us from past peril is the promise that he will deliver us in some form or fashion in the future. As the Apostle Paul says, on him... We have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us on him, not on worship style, not on strategic plan, not on church growth, on him. It is not that we are delivered from trouble, 
as Paul Shearer says. Every time Paul gets out of trouble, he goes running straight back into it. The promise is that God will find a way through because we have a God that raises the dead. No situation is hopeless. Oh, John. John. I speak partly today to be reminded that John Petty's voice is not silenced, nor will his life be known for just one particular event. You see, today, God works. I know it does not replace the grief of Kelly, but John helps preach this sermon today. So be reminded, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the hope that God will continue, continue to deliver us And no disappointment, no circumstance, no church, or even death itself can take that hope away on which we set our heart.